Hello and welcome back. This is episode two and chapter two of the Orca audiobook podcast. Since we last spoke, my wife and I, our soon-to-be ten-year-old husky, and our catamaran have relocated to France to escape Brexit. So apologies for the delay. Actually, I'll try to get episode three out soon too. For this podcast, I met an interesting friend of John and Cara's, James Tomlinson. James is a very accomplished single-hander. You can watch his videos on YouTube under the name Samingo Sailing, where he sails his westerly typhoon named Talisker One. Solo sailing is a discipline that's hard to understand unless you've sailed extensively. It requires a mindset quite different from the norm and sets these people apart from all but the very best long-distance cruisers. James joined us in the quiet Highfleet Anchorage on the east coast of the UK days before we left. It was an unusually quiet evening and made for a very good interview, so good that I've split it over two instalments. In this episode, we get to know about James, how he met John and Cara, and a little about his interest in sailing. In the next episode, James gets a little more into the technicality of the single-hander. Listen closely and you might catch incredibly intrinsic details pertinent to this rare breed. There is so much I wish I could have left in from this meeting, but time is always pressing. It was an absolute pleasure to meet with James. I hope some of that is conveyed to you. His enthusiasm for John and Cara's book rivals my own. So, finally, you do not need to take my word for it. Orca is an excellent book. I absolutely love the sea and I love boats um, but um, I, I I love I love being safe on the water I like people taking it seriously uh, the sea is a very very it, it's very very unforgiving if you get it wrong um, what made you interested though in sailing in 1998 I've always, no but I'd been I boated always I'd right. always had a little boat I built my own little boat when I was 11 oh, really? little five foot uh, five little pram rain dinghy that I put on a small pond at home that my parents and we had the you know a little runabout speedboat for family holidays and, all, and that sort of thing and I loathed we lived in right in the middle of the country we were bang in the center of Buckinghamshire right in the right. middle of England you couldn't have been further from the sea in any direction and the thought of leaving the sea at the end of a holiday was appalling to me and I was the one always tying the knots and doing everything and I, I saw my father you know launch this little boat wrong every time and I thought can I do it now and I was about nine I think and I was allowed to take over with the and supervise the grown-ups and make sure they didn't screw it up and uh, moor it and bail it out and and uh, yeah. so no I, I was uh, I always I, I always hoped to have a bit I didn't think um um yeah I, the, the I think my ancestors, I was talking to my brother about it the other day, our ancestors, Tomlinson, on the Tomlinson side, mm -hmm. were bargemen from Yorkshire oh. who came to London. So they were bargemen. And uh, we have quite a lot of Norwegian, you know that test you do to find out where you right, come from? Yeah. We've got more Norwegian in us than Scots. I, my father always thought he was half Scots, right. which in, technically he was, but... There was an awful lot more Norwegian than Scots mm. in my 
grandmother because it's in in our um it's the amount of antifreeze isn't it yeah bed. is it antifreeze <laughs> yes that's probably it so there's quite a lot of norwegian and then um my uh, my great great grandfather william john tomlinson he won he was a he was a london cabbie except he was not a London cabbie, he was a Thames waterman. And the watermen in those days rode people across the river before oh, yeah. bridges were built, yeah. which required some skills. You know, when you think of how you see the Thames running mm. the tidal mm. river, you know, how what it was like to row a heavy boat across the backs and forwards across the river uh, with clients. So William John was, uh, was, was a Thames waterman. There's also evidence that he was a boat builder as well. And he won, in 19, 1831, he won the Doggett Coat and Badge, which was a race for the watermen held annually. Mm -hmm. And if you won, the, which was a, a rowing race, I don't know, Craig, it was a, a long, a long way. He won it, and he, the watermen were then allowed to wear a special orange livery dress, extraordinary <laughs> dress. Yeah. And so, I, so there, there is... I'm sure there's boating in the in the blood. I'm <laughs> certain of it. I'm, cer I'm, cer I'm certain of it. <laughs> have your children then? Have you passed on the gene to your children? Oh, good question. Abby, yeah. my grand my granddaughter. Yeah. That I think is my granddaughter. Texas. Yeah. She she took to it. I went. I I took her to Ozark. The the Ozark Lakes. Right. We all went there, boating. And um, all the grandchildren took like, took to it like a duck to water. I think Abby was about eleven when I when I when I took her the first time. But she came sailing here last summer. She came over and stayed with me for quite a few weeks. Stayed with us all, and we went sailing on Talisker. And you know, it's very, very once every now and again somebody just gets it mm -hmm. immediately. They get yeah. the whole thing immediately, and they get the Somehow, the whole thing is totally natural. They remember the terminology. They remember what you're talking about. And they suddenly... And she had everything. And it was instant. It was... Um, and she did some extraordinary things in within five or six days on that boat. Totally got it. Totally understood it. And, and, and loved it. Um, so... Um, I'm I'm trying to work out where in the states I can send her on sailing on oh, offshore sailing courses. Yeah. I'm looking at more Alpha, but yeah. I've asked them okay. if they can take her. But during COVID, I'm not going to. Yeah, they're doing their courses at the moment. I know everything's open. Yeah, yeah. So what's that all I about? Know. I know, I know. Oh gosh, we don't even um, start. <laughs> this podcast is going to be. As far as the children are concerned, as far as the children are concerned. Well, I've got uh, I've got two son-in-laws who are surfers, mm. um, but no, the children didn't really. Hannah hasn't really. She can, she gets quite seasick. Maybe it skips a generation. Yeah, you know, she, she's <laughs> she she'll come on the boat mm. occasionally, but it's not. No, it's not like their their men will be more keen. Mm. Dominic and uh, Logan, I think, will be more keen, but they are surfers, so. That's a different form of water sport, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and they're good, good surfers. Well, I mean, the best surfer has uh, got to be John Pennington. Hasn't it? Yeah. Have you seen? Have you seen the? Who's this chap? Have yeah. you seen the video? Who's John Pennington? <laughs> Who's the? Have you seen the? Cara showed me a video, and he's on a sort of 
Well, he, he looks as on the edge of a sort of tower block. Yeah, of water. And I said, what's that? And it's a wave. <laughs> and there's John on it. And I said, what happens when the wave <coughs> crashes down? He said, well, you've sometimes got to... Scrape you've got to hold your breath for um, not one wave, not two waves, but sometimes three waves before you yeah. get up. And I said, don't be silly. <laughs> don't be silly. I'd be dead after... I'd be dead the first... Uh, well, also, you've had all the wind knocked out of you anyway. You've been slammed on the sand. It's... Well, I don't know what happens to you when you're slammed oh, on, though. You have... yeah. Do you get slammed on the sand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, really hard. I've had the wetsuit ripped off my back. Been... Are you a surfer as well? No. I, I mean, I, I've been out there. I'm not a surfer. <laughs> well, I've been thrown up the beach. Well, without a... By the time you... Uh... But, I mean, not not quite the same thing as... A... There's a surfboard right there, in fact. Yeah. Never been used, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I love surfing. Yeah. But I'm a horrible surfer. I mean, just horrible. I mean, it's just ridiculous, but I love it. If love you enjoy it, it, though, that's the point. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, you need to You need to somehow be with Kara and... Um, you need to be with Kara and John. Kara's a good surfer. I bet, yeah. I bet she'd be a good teacher, too. I bet yes, she would. Like, oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can teach me one day. They'll be... I'm, I'd... Did you see the photograph of Dean when he was marooned on that boy? On yes. that oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, who on earth's going on here? He's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely appalled. I know. I nearly, I, I nearly reported them. <laughs> well, actually, let's just do this. In, in, in point of fact, John, John threatened. Uh, he said, um, he's, he's, he, he, Dean's going to be sent to look after me in the not too distant future on my boat. <laughs> he, uh, when I when I get a bit decrepit, apparently <laughs> apparently I, I'm going to be sent Dean. I said, well, I need him. I need deal. him tomorrow. <laughs> good, good deal. Yes. All right. Well, let's let's do this part of this thing for you. Did I do, well, we've just talked a load of horseshit. No, yeah, that's great. No. I like horseshit. So, how did you meet John Carr? Oh, how did I meet? Yes, I met some Australians. Um who owned a boat called Taipan, uh, David and Chris, in Norway in 2017. I was just wandering around Bergen and there was this Aussie, Aussie Ensign on this boat. <laughs> You're a long way from home. I'll try you. So I uh, had a chat with them and they, ke they kept in touch all the way. Uh, after that, we exchanged telephone numbers and all that sort of thing. They were sailing west and they asked me questions about um, they hadn't been, I don't think at that time they'd been to Shetland, Fair Isle and Orkney, so they asked questions about that. Um, and I t told them where where I was. I sailed from Stavanger straight back to Scotland and then back down the East Coast. And eventually, uh, Chris and David and Taipan made it to Ipswich. Um, and I went and said hello to them in Ipswich Haven. And then I think I sailed to Belgium and came back. And I was anchored somewhere off Shotley and my phone pinged. And it was Chris saying, hi, there's a, there's a, see you're off short, Shotley. He's obviously looking at AIS, found me. Then I'll see you off Shotley. Can you see if there's a, um, there's a green, um, uh, what's, what's their boat called? What's their make of their boat? Oh, coupe. Yes, there's a green cup, and and they said uh, there's a green Koopman's forty one. It's got a, 
a young couple with a baby. We're worried about them. They've been anchored off shortly for about three or four days. Could you go and check if they were all right? Can you call them on the radio? Can you see if they're... I did actually, first of all, call them on the radio to see if I could get hold of them. Mm. Nothing, of course. John, the privacy of the whole thing. Shut down. <laughs> ignore people. Just uh, low profile. American ensign, about the size of... Hanky. So I thought, this is going to be fun. I said, what are their names? And, and Chris said, well... Uh, Car and John, and the babe's called Dean. So uh, I, I motored up in Talisker, and the, the smiling face saw me approaching, a little bit too close, slightly. How? Cara! Cara, John, how are you? And they were absolutely horrified. They wondered whether I was uh, some sort of British secret agent or something that I was coming to them. So that's how I first met them. So we had a bit of a chat, and I said, there's some Aussies who are... Chris and David are very, very worried about you. And that's an extraordinary story about Chris and David uh, meeting up with them again. I was going to say that, yeah. Because they had last seen each other crossing the Indian Ocean oh, when right. they had Orca. Yeah, yeah. And Chris and David were somewhere in the southern North Sea of Holland and they saw this, uh, they saw Santine being oh. sailed. And they got close enough. And they were... they look familiar. So saw something being sailed immaculately, by the way. <laughs> and uh, they said, hey, Christ, that's John and Cara. And they hadn't seen them. That's, the the, I mean, that, that, that's how small the sailing world is. Yeah. That they, you know, from the Indian Ocean, and that they, they, they then meet up. Yeah. And they hadn't seen them since the Indian Ocean. Yeah, I so that was that. very, very sweet. So that's how they knew they were about. Yeah. Um, and actually, when I when I met when I eventually met them in Ipswich Haven, um, John Carr said they'd crossed from they'd done their first voyage on Centene, which they they had recently bought, and they'd sailed across the Southern North Sea. And they, of course, Dean slept like a slept all the way for the whole twenty four hour passage, while John and Carr looked at the depths down and went, "Christ, am I ever going to run aground any second? It's only sixty meters under the keel." <laughs> Having been used to, having been used to deep water, they couldn't see, cope with the Southern North Sea. And, went, and, when, when, and when they got into the estuary, uh, into the confines, of the, you know, approaching Long Sand Head, I don't know which way they came in, but they stuck to the shipping channel all the way, <laughs> all the way into Ipswich. And even that was, oh my God, it's only there's only there's only fifteen meters. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 you should have come in on the Medusa Channel. That would have been... What? But there's a tune. There's, 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 there's no water there. There's no water there's there. There's a hand, isn't there? So, um, so anyway, they were, um, they, no, they were very sweet. But they got here. They obviously got into, into Harwich Harbour and being master, masters of knowing where to anchor. They said, that's a good spot. And they anchored in a place that Doc and I use a lot and many other people. They went straight to the prime spot in in a westerly wind off Shotley, and that's where they were anchored yeah. when I found them. And of course, they, exhausted, wanted to sleep when they arrived. Of course, Dean woke up and wanted to play. <laughs> wanted to play, play, play. Yeah, non-stop. Yeah, non-stop. Oh, so sweet. But it was lovely after that because we saw a lot of them. Mm. It was a very cold winter. Mm. They came to our house, spent a lot of time over with us, all of them. And I think at some point Cara went back and John came over a few times. Mm. Oh, yeah, we, 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 had a, we, had a, we had a great winter. And I think, yeah, David and uh, Candy were in um, London. 
eventually went down to London, and uh, Chris and David were were about some of the time. So we had a few good parties over over with us, yeah. and we missed you. I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You could have come too. Well, that would have been great. We could have had a bath and all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sold in your wine. John used to, John, John used to come and. Uh, John, John was left. I quite rightly, Cara deserted with Dean when the when they came out at Ipswich uh, at Foxes. Oh, for the paint job. For the I can't believe what John did on that. I right. know we watched him every day. Um, that was a frightening job. Um, <laughs> and uh, the sandblaster came out and said, "No, no, no, I'm not sandblasting that. He said, You've got to take some of that." The sandblasting guy couldn't believe what they'd achieved. Yeah. Um, um, so I was terribly sad to see them go. Terribly, terribly sad. We sailed up to Lersdorf together and off they went. Um, I think Dean really liked Fuji's toys, I remember. Oh, yeah. He found one of his toys them. and he was chewing on Oh yes, he'd chew those. And John, um, John did throw him in the harbour deliberately. <laughs> in, in the harbour in the middle of winter. He said, well, if he falls in the harbour once, he won't do it again. I get in trouble for Do you remember him hoisting him up the... Do <laughs> you remember hoisting him up the... Um, in the... Made a little bosun's chair yeah. for him and used to hoist him well, up. Was, uh, Marie, wasn't it? From Red, Red Rue, didn't she make that? Or she, that made, she, 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 she made something for him. But John had already been, you know, sending him aloft. <laughs> and, um, and he did. He did. I know John went... I know, I know John fell in the harbour himself. Really? Once when he'd had a beer too many. Oh, I missed all of this. Um, but he'd certainly made sure that Dean got wet once. <laughs> uh, um, I don't think Cara was that impressed. With, no. <laughs> with, with, with Dean going in that disgust. I mean, God Almighty, what is in that harbour? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of sensible about Cara. Um, <laughs> maybe not with John. So, what so, singles them out? What, why are we talking about John and Cara? What's the difference? I think that I, I think I mean I've sailed a little I've, I've sailed a little bit with him, mm. and I've talked an awful, awful lot of sailing with him. Um, I I just think he's I, I just think they're outstanding. I, I I didn't talk to Cara very much, but I know John uh, regards her as an absolute equal. Mm. In fact, in the book he says uh, she's much better than me at, at everything. <laughs> um, she would have to be pretty outstanding to me. But I, I, I think they are equals, uh, and equals as a team. Um, I think of all the really good sailors I know, and John seems to have a bit of every all of them, all their strengths. He seems to have all their strengths. Uh, he's very, very bright, very, very, very smart. Um, Normally, I say, don't tell him. He would no, no, don't, don't, don't tell him. Uh, in the book, you you look at the book and you see the observation of people, of life, of what's going on. He doesn't miss anything. Yeah. And he listens to everything. And he's very much got his own mind. I mean, he's no, 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 he will he will make up his own mind of, of, of how he's going to deal with something. Nobody else is going to make up, but he will listen to everything. Mm. Yeah. And then make him. And as sailors, I think they they will make the right decisions. Mm. 
they will always make the right step, which is essential. Yeah. Their decision-making will be really good. And at times you've got to make decisions. And even and reading get... Between the Lines in the book, they have every time, haven't they? Yeah. It's a good book, but there's no... Well, I think I think the thing about the, the, the people... The, the, the book is wonderful because if you are a non-sailor, you will enjoy it, I think, as much as if you're a sailor. Mm. Uh, it should it, it appeals to both because there's so much observation of life and, and, and where we are, where the planet is today. Um, but a non-sailor or people who haven't sailed very much will read the early part of the book and think they were green when they were set off. Well, they weren't. Uh, he was he was far too. He, he, he wasn't green. He'd been off and done his celestial navigation on the bridge of a ship for, I don't know how long he went off. I seem to seem six weeks, eight weeks or something to mm -hmm. learn that celestial navigation. Um, so he, they did, they did know what they were doing. Obviously, by the time they, as they slowly worked their way around the world, they were getting better and better at what they were doing. Uh, but they didn't go off green, completely yes. green. Yes. Although it's quite a good story at the beginning. It helps, it? but actually, but even in the first chapter, you know, again reading between the lines, it was a good year or so before he bought the boat, and he yeah. was sailing with a work colleague, wasn't he? Yeah, I seem to think so. They still had some um, no, he they they he they, 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 they knew what they and and they did everything. That, I mean, the, those early decisions of of having uh, the, the the less you have, the less it can go wrong. Um, having the ba having having all the basics, um, um, it's very very clever. Everything you know, everything they they could fix themselves, and John is very very good. They're both very very good at fixing stuff. So, um, I would say the ability to improvise as a sailor is essential, and they've got that in buckets. So, you know, if you had, you have to, to have done the sail they did yes. in that tiny Absolutely. in that tiny boat, which of course was. Forty years ago, it wouldn't have been a tiny boat, but it was a tiny boat by the time they. <laughs> when you think what the other boats they were meeting on the way, I think it's one. I think it's the the best one of the best sailing books I've ever read. Mm. One of the best books I've ever read, and it's a weird one because it's if, if anyone reading it for the first time, I always say to people, get through the first two chapters because the it's almost as though John was learning to write when he wrote those first two chapters mm. of the book progresses he becomes better and better oh, and better accelerates, isn't it? it just accelerates yeah, yeah. it's incredible oh, is there anything you take from the book as a sailor god you take something every time you yeah you take something from everybody you meet don't you um and we talked and talked and talked sailing mm. and boats nothing john said Cara didn't say I can't say Cara said because she, we didn't talk much sailing, but John never, he everything he said made total sense. Mm. And he didn't say a lot. <laughs> if he was going to say something, you pricked your ears open, you listened. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love them to bits. Absolutely love them to bits. Chapter 2 The weather was fierce and unrelenting. Thirty-knot gusts swirled in from the south, just the direction we wanted to go. We bobbed at the dock in agony, 
trapped below as the rigging moaned and rain splattered the cabin sides. The farewell party was over. Orca was loaded with tools, groceries and spares. A dozen methodical lists had beautiful proud check marks next to each and every item. Then, weather. We postponed departure and mum and dad exchanged knowing looks. I valiantly refrained from strangling them. The weather broke. The wind went from thirty to zero. Just to prove we could, we left. We showed them. Two days we sat just off town, limp sails hanging like stage curtains as the oily water undulated beneath us. Later, Dad told us, We didn't hear from you for three days. I would have called the Coast Guard. He suppressed a snigger at this point. If I hadn't been able to see you out of my office window. We started to drift backward. A depressing realisation. This was the trip of a lifetime. We were out to tame the mighty Pacific, covering inconceivable distances using nothing but stoic endurance and the fickle power of the wind. The spray would be flying, salt air in our nostrils, as the loyal ship beneath our feet bashed through mountainous seas. In reality, however, we had covered negative three miles in 48 hours. Anchored off town, eventually the wind came up, again from the south. A sailboat doesn't go straight into the wind, so we worked down the coast, zigzagging through endless tacks. Whales and dolphins visited and we felt sleepy, drowsiness brought on by seasickness. Kara had never spent a night at sea, so we took short watches and she was to wake me if anything new happened if the steering vane changed course, if the sails flapped, if Orca heeled too much, if the mast fell down, anything of that nature. There were no problems other than deadly slow, frustrating progress, and eventually we approached Morrow Bay. Our charts and guides warned of a tricky harbour entrance when a swell is running. We radioed the Morrow Bay Coast Guard who told us eight-foot waves were breaking across the channel and the harbour would close at dusk. I was tired of being at sea, disappointed by slow progress and frustrated by contrary winds. I'd made my point, left town, and now we could wait for more favourable conditions. Kara agreed, not knowing any better. I was very nervous, frighteningly inexperienced, and now I realise quite stupid. It would have been much safer to stay at sea. When we arrived outside the breakwater, the Coast Guard station sent a cadet with handheld radio down to the rocks with binoculars to assist us. The radio crackled. Orca! 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 This is C.G. Morrow Bay. I'm here to help you. 
but first I must inform you that any decisions or actions you may make or take under counsel of the Coast Guard are your own responsibility and the USCG cannot be held responsible or liable for any loss of life or property incurred under the advisement of the USCG or any representatives of the aforementioned agency including myself. Do you hereby agree? What was this? I was the captain of a ship at sea. Of course I was responsible for my own actions. This wasn't Disneyland. The cadet was still rambling on, fouled up in the bureaucracy of liabilities, while a golden opportunity was passing us by. A set of bigger waves loomed on the horizon. There would be a lull behind them. If we were in position, it would be enough. I brought us as close to the entrance as I dared and spun the helm to meet the set bow on. Orca bravely crested it, crashing down the backside, bow under and water rolling down the sails and streaming off the deck. I wrenched at the wheel, radio still droning inaudible with the 35-year-old two-cylinder diesel at full throttle, the sheets and sails thrumming under the strains and the waves thundering against the breakwater. We followed in the foam, and by the time the next wave detonated, Orca was behind the barrier. Plumes of spray shot over the rocks, reaching for us, but the suddenly dry wind blew them away and we were safe. Our progress still wasn't very impressive. Cara's sister was waiting on the pier to have a beer with us. She might have been a mole, a double agent trained in secret by Dad. We came ashore and wobbled around. Everything was still rocking. At the bar, I explained why we were holed up. No, we weren't turning back. Another low-pressure system was due to pass. We were simply waiting out the south winds. We finished our beers, and Kara's sister was recalled north for a debriefing in the situation room. I hope Dad at least covered her fuel bill. The rest of our time in Morro Bay was uneventful, except for a briefly thrilling ill-fated attempt to sail across the estuary in the dinghy, during which I was shipwrecked on a godforsaken stretch of windswept sand dunes littered with bird skeletons. Coconut's mast step, a little cup that holds the base of her mast, mysteriously came loose, despite the four bolts holding it in place. Actually, I saw it happen. Swept across the bay, tiller unresponsive, I watched each one slowly and deliberately unwinding with insidious little horror movie squeaks. With only a few threads left on the last bolt, I was forced to abandon the tiller and leap forward to save the mast, at which point Coconut assumed complete control and promptly crashed onto the only desolate stretch of beach in Southern California. With no tools to fix the mast, I had to row back across the bay and arrived exhausted in the dark with blistered hands. The next evening... The wind was indeed from the north, so we left. The waves at the harbour mouth were small and playful. Night fell, pitch black, and a kerosene lantern struggled to warm the cabin. The wind increased to twenty knots, and we were flying along. Rain splashed against the port lights and soaked down the neck of my fowlies. 
Oil platforms glowed like torches in the distance, a string of them every mile or two. The charts warned to keep back two miles. Terrorist threat level code 11 Bravo critical. We took watches, but Kara's feet were cold and she couldn't sleep. She wanted food. I suggested rum. We rounded Point Conception, where the wind whips by and passed out of civilization. A forlorn lighthouse burned bravely until dawn. We anchored, tucked up behind the cliffs, out of the grey wind. There were two shipwrecks on the beach, sailboats about Orca's size. I shivered there would be no confusion about responsibility here, in this patch of wilderness. We'd look after ourselves and that was fine. It was a beautiful spot, but hostile and cold. Kara ate and I slept. Later we surfed a few pretty waves in the lee of the point and clambered over the shipwrecks, their canted cabins filled with trickling sand. The sky darkened and a cutting wind rolled sea foam bubbles up the cliffs. It felt like a cursed place. We pulled up the anchor and shipped off for the Channel Islands. Even though only a handful of miles from Los Angeles, most of the Channel Islands are deserted, just rocks and sand. We were strictly forbidden from going ashore, ostensibly to protect the wildlife from human influence. I suppose desolate islands make convenient nature reserves, since no human wants to live there anyway. Apparently, they were also excellent for heavy artillery target practice and for the disposal of chemical weapons, at least according to our government chart, which warned of both. We anchored in a cove and saw hundreds of elephant seals on the beach. Orca was a fair way out, and they looked harmless enough in the binoculars. The water was clear and cold. We set off for the beach snorkelling. On the sand it was apparent the seals weren't small and harmless at all. Big bulls were fighting over females, teeth flashing, snarling like mad. It was mating season. Sand flew. The ground shook. The cliffs rumbled, reflected thunderous cries, and the water turned to froth. The losers were scratched, bitten and gouged. Blood dripped down flanks into the sand, into the water. Into the water where we had to swim to get back to the boat. We stared out at her, so very far out, and I came to the disconcerting realisation that Orca was the name of the boat the monster shark terrorises in the movie Jaws. We swam quickly, hoisted the anchor and left the strange place behind. Continuing south, we noticed signs that we were nearing humanity again. Sailing thirty miles offshore, we passed shiny red shapes in the water and in the sky, a plume of plastic drifting out to sea on the easterly breeze. We passed a hundred of them, so I fished one out, a shiny heart-shaped balloon. Be mine. It was Valentine's Day, or close to it. The line of balloons continued out to sea, and we followed it back towards its source. Later that evening, I knew landfall was imminent. 
A cloud of spray was approaching, and a motorboat emerged, full throttle hurtling right at us. We swerved, and it swerved. We couldn't escape, and Kara squealed, Brace for impact! I thought we were done. At the last minute, the driver throttled back and stuck his sunburned face out of the flying bridge. His bow wave set us rocking wildly. We hung on to anything bolted down. My coffee leapt into flight, soaring across the cockpit to splatter across Kara's seat. The powerboater peered through the dark, white-framed designer sunglasses that matched his bleached hair, but hid his bewilderment. "'Hey! You there! You there! Where am I?' he demanded. He was lost, and somehow this was my fault. Or maybe the lack of maritime street signs was to blame. I checked my charts and told him he was about one mile west of Mission Bay. "'Damn it! Wrong harbour again! Which way to Newport?' I pointed north, and he sped off without a word. Kara looked at me. I shrugged. Now in cell range again, I decided to call my parents to let them know we were going to Mexico. "'Hi, Mum. We're in San Diego.' But we're heading for Mexico tomorrow, I said it calmly, soothingly. The phone blew up, its speaker rattling the plastic. What? Mexico? You can't leave the country? During the tirade, I resolved to send all further news via email. John, Dad is very angry with you. Here he is. I sighed. This was not going well. This is your father speaking. Now listen to me. He must have been running out of oxygen because he took a deep breath and continued very slowly. You will not go to Mexico. End of story. This was a bit more emphatic than I was expecting. But, Dad, why not? I've been reading the fine print on your health insurance. I could imagine Dad in his office barking orders at Mum gathering materials for battle, plotting strategies to stop us, pushing a tiny model sailboat down a chart with a pool cue. He was picking up steam again. Section 123.3.4b says that if you are injured outside the US, you are not covered. You know what that means? You're going to get badly hurt. Then we will have to pay a fortune to evacuate you back to the US for good care, and your mother and I will be stuck with a half-million-dollar hospital bill for the reconstructive surgery and physical therapy that you will require to live out the remainder of your miserable little ungrateful life. So we will have to sell the house, the cars, cash out our retirement and sell everything we've worked for in the last 50 years just so you can go gallivanting into a gunfight between loco drug lords down in Mexico. His face, I'm sure, was purple, forehead throbbing. That scenario sounded a bit extreme to me. I wouldn't want you to do that, Dad. But we would have to, have to. Your mother's maternal instincts would require it. His paternal instincts were conspicuously silent on the matter. We bickered about it for a while, but I could see their point. On the other hand, 
People went to Mexico all the time, didn't they? Even Dad had gone to Mexico. In the end, the old standby came through. Listen, Dad, honestly, how long do you think we're going to be gone? We'll be careful and be out of Mexico before you know it. He assumed we would be out of Mexico back in the US and I didn't correct him. It was dishonest, but I rationalised that if I didn't calm him down, there would be health implications. Even though this alternate outcome, with him in the hypothetical hospital instead of I, would be supremely satisfying, I convinced myself to take the higher, selfless road by lying shamelessly. It was for his own good, after all. By the time we tied up to the San Diego Harbour Police dock, it was 3pm, Thursday afternoon. The harbour master's office door was silently, emphatically closed, and a long sign brusquely informed us that their hours were variable and subject to change. It also said, off-handedly, in a fine print, that we were allowed to go nowhere and do nothing without express written permission from this office, and that office closure was not their problem, it was ours. Not thrilled with the arrangement, we decided to wait, but no one showed. Darkness crept over the smoggy sky. The harbour police, a separate entity who could not, they informed us, authorise us to anchor anywhere at any time due to threats to national security, kicked us off their dock. We sailed around aimlessly until we found a few anchored sailboats squeezed between a battleship and an oozing, bubbling mud bank. I spotted someone on deck. Excuse me? Can we anchor here? Yeah, no problem. They just checked permits a few minutes ago. You should be safe till 5am. Then you've got to get lost or they'll slap you with a pretty hefty fine. Pardon? The welders on the battleship were hammering something into shape. A helicopter was taking off a hundred yards away. It paused, hovering. What's going on? Don't worry, just an exercise. Happens every Thursday. Should be done by two. A.M.? Why are you even anchored here? This is a military harbour. Civilian moorage is tightly regulated. It's the only place they'll let us. Expensive permit, too. Beer? We dropped the hook, set an alarm and finished the last of the American beer. From here on, it was going to be Tecate, Modelo and Corona. I started to drift off, despite the helicopter clattering. Around midnight, two fighter jets were scrambled to escort a Valentine's balloon out of government airspace, and the welders on the battleship started to make excellent progress around 3am. The next morning dawned too dim and too early. I crawled out of bed and got the anchor up. I figured we'd sneak out of the harbour before anyone was awake. That was very naive. War never sleeps. We hadn't made it a mile before we were surrounded. Out of the white swirling mist appeared four grey gunboats, their loudspeakers echoing over the sleepy harbour. White sloop! White sloop! You are surrounded! Kara passed up my first cup of coffee. Good luck, honey. When should I start breakfast? White sloop! Move to the green side of the channel. It was 6am. The mist was turning into fog. 
I wiped my bleary eyes and shook my head. The cog shuddered and began to turn. That's right, shipping channels were marked in red and green, even this early in the morning. Which side was the green side? I looked around, but I couldn't see any channel marks. It was half dark, foggy, and the channel was a mile wide. Plus, I'd just spent the last 12 months drooling over charts from far-off lands, and the US's channel mark system is opposite to almost every other country's. White Sloop! White Sloop! This is your second warning! Move to the green side! I gulped coffee, tried to think, mumbling the US sailor's monomic. Red right returning, red right returning... So which side of the channel would be green when you're leaving? The intercept boat spun to expose gun turrets. I could fit my arm down any of the eight barrels pointing at my head, and this thought didn't help my mental acuity. In fact, I froze, panicked, guessed, and put the wheel over to port. A dozen teenagers, most old enough to have finished middle school, fingered their assault rifles fondly. They were just aching to take their first-person shooter skills out of Mum's basement. White Sloop! White Sloop! This is your final warning! Greenside! My imagination told me I could hear the clank of pop-can-sized shells being chambered in the turrets and, in case our fibreglass hull survived the barrage of cannon fire at Point Blank, the Navy boys copped their assault rifles and brought them to bear. Having eliminated the possibility of surviving a turn to port, I spun the wheel to starboard and held my breath. There was a long pause before Orca responded. The soldiers seemed to like this course better. The gunboats escorted us out of the harbour, about a mile offshore, in tight formation. The conning tower of a nuclear submarine sliced by, doing an easy thirty knots. Orca tossed crazily in the wake. The gunboats... Done covering the sub's exit, broke off and sped back to base. Mission accomplished. Terrorist threat neutralised. I unclenched various sphincters and let out a high-pressure sigh. Maybe Mum and Dad were right. If the California coast was any indication, the world was turning out to be a much scarier place than I'd anticipated. Perhaps we should turn back. Then I remembered my life back in hometown and decided against it. With considerable mental effort, I shook off despair and asked Cara to set a course for Mexico. Tecate or ale? Eh? Tecate or ale? What's that? Mexican beer. <laughs> oh God, I've forgotten that. Oh yes, but the the, the um the the, the oh I, the the worst part of the book. The worst part of the oh, book. Okay, yeah. God Almighty, I I I still have I still wake up. Uh, well, I I don't like going underground. Oh, absolutely, I agree oh. with you. Underground oh, and yes, my yes. I, my claustrophobia. Yeah. When he described, well, who was his mate from the states who turned up and who was slightly. Who, who was slightly overweight. This is in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, and they're New Zealand. New Zealand. They went potholing with a cousin. Yeah, yeah. My, they, John it... met a long-lost cousin who took them potholing. Wasn't it another relative from the States? Arthur. 
Was it Arthur? Arthur, Arthur rocked up to have a nice holiday right. and he was taken potholing. Yeah. And I think he took the first flight back to the States yeah. after that. <laughs> That, but that, that really did frighten the life out of me. me when I, when, it, when it was described that John, John, it was described you have to go in frontwise, then you've got to turn on your back, and mm. then you've got to hold your breath and go through, mm. and then it, there's no one, you've got to squeeze through. And then Arthur had to be stripped naked to get through, because <laughs> he was he had to be, and that that uh, the cousin was pushing him through from one, and they were miles underground. Oh, oh yeah. God. Oh. And, they, and, they, and they'd gone down a hole that, you know, that, that big. They'd gone down a rabbit hole in the ground. So I didn't care for that very much. I'd forgotten about that. But it was a very good adventure. Yeah. It was a very good adventure. Special thanks to James Tomlinson for this interview. The book is read by Graham Richards and recorded by Adam Hobden. Production is by myself, Ben Burbank-Green. Music is by Claire and the Reasons from their album KR51.